Every day at America's Card Room, players just like you are scoring big in record time with Jackpot Poker. Jackpot Poker is a super fast three-player online poker set and go. You pick the buy-in, and after all three players are seated, we randomly pick the jackpot. Yep, just three players. No more, no less. And for most jackpot poker tournaments, it's winner take all. Imagine turning a $40 buy-in into the ultimate $100,000 game of poker. Anything could happen with jackpot poker. Play it now at America's Card Room. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 153 on the com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, Simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the oneouter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash oneouter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on oneouter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, um, last time we spoke, which was a few weeks ago now, you were talking about plans and stuff of you were going to Canada to play, and people that follow your Twitter and Facebook page, etc., will be aware that you were playing the WPT there, and you had a little run and stuff, so I've not spoke to Alex since about it, I've just saw bits on social media, etc., so Alex, if you want to take us through your your latest foray into being a poker player again, even a part-time one. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, by the way, uh, to everyone again. I know this show is named after me, but I still feel like a guest, so thank you for having me. Yeah, it was, I'm having a hard time coming up with the appropriate words, but it was definitely an experience. I put together a playbook that I was very confident in. I, I did it for my poker players because I did it I did it for my students because many of them do play live but at some point you want to if you're watching somebody play video games and you see them make mistakes in a specific map that you're really familiar with on Halo you're like all right you know get out of here you know give me that controller well let me show you how it's done right so it was fun in that sense that it had been a little while since I'd played live poker, and the first couple of orbits were, like, I didn't feel out of sorts, but I did feel a little excited, nervous excitement, mm-hmm. and that right there is pretty special to get, because I've been doing this, <clears throat> I guess I started playing poker when I was 15, so I guess that's 14 years now, and the fact that you can still be excited by it just shows what a special game it is. But it was very nice to be able to apply my algorithm, to be able to apply my strategies, and to see they work. They got the exact desired results uh, that I wanted. Uh, I felt I was able to apply nuances that perhaps are very difficult to teach other players. Uh, I was able to make some adjustments that I myself was not very capable of doing up until very recently. Uh, I, I was very sure of myself. I, I've adopted a new approach uh, when I play poker, which uh, it's, very mu- it's very much based on uh, basketball analytics, where uh, we've discussed this on the show. There, there's different point expectations for different shots. Three-point shots with a 40% efficacy uh, get you 1.2 points. Uh, paint two-point shots get you one point, and a non-paint two-point shot is 0.8 points. If you ever listen to the Van Gundys talk about basketball, uh, they're going to be talking about this constantly because it's a it's a very easy way to diagram what looks like a very complex game to begin with, uh, which is basketball seems like a very nuanced game, but if you see that the name of the game is maximizing your number of possessions. Uh, minimizing the number of possessions your opponents get by minimizing turnovers and maximizing your point expectations on the shots you take Uh, in adding shots as well through rebounding. You can see this is actually a fairly simple game to break down. Execution, of course, being a much different thing than a sheer breakdown of the strategy, but you can do a version of this in poker, which is 
I've just memorized what the expectation is on most plays. Uh, that was not easy. That didn't take me a few days. That didn't take me a few months. That took me a few years. And just having awareness of what generally happens when you, you know, A plus B equals C in Cardrunner's EV or in database reviews, generally this play shows this profit. And I was able to make much more educated decisions than I have been able to previously, which was if I three bet here, I know I'm good for this many big blinds, but it also increases my variance by this much, right? And if I flat here, I know I'm good for this many big blinds, and the variance is actually very slim, but I know it's actually pretty close when it comes to profit margins. Like, a good example of that is, like, ace-queen of diamonds. Like, ace-queen of diamonds retains its value very well in multi-way pots. Uh, and maybe in a live setting, I don't really think it's a great three-betting hand as much as it used to be. Like, it's, it, it is a more profitable hand to three-bet than it is to flat, for sure. But I like three-betting it online a lot because people will do a psycho four-bet into me. Whereas live, uh, a lot of times when the stacks are shorter, the people are going to fold or they're going to move all in. And when they're moving all in, they're not moving in with ace-jack offsuit. So... What what I can do is I can say, like, well, you know, later on with ace-deuce offsuit, if I three-bet here, I can take this hand that's normally not going to be good for any big blinds. Uh, it's just an atrocious hand. And I can convert it into a two- or three-big blind hand, which is 200, 300 big blinds uh, per hundred by three-betting it in this spot. And I don't want to lose that opportunity by three-betting this ace-queen suited now, which is good for a couple big blinds if I flat anyway. It just happens to be good for another big blind and a half if I three bet. But I don't think with this payout structure coming up, that's really of the greatest importance to me right now. And being able to make more educated decisions like that and being able to understand multi-street play in a different way uh, was very, very gratifying. I also, I picked off a huge bluff by, uh, like I called off all my chips on day one. Uh, versus a young French-Canadian pro. And I was able to put the pieces together. I felt like I was able to make a really good read based on my focus. Uh, I Working out, I worked out every day before the events. I, I, did, uh, I did my stretches just like I do in my gym in uh, uh, the financial district in New York. I, uh, I did a lot of like core workouts, interval training, and my focus was just, 100% better than it's been in the past. And I was able to watch every single hand. I have not been able to do that in a tournament in a very long time. I had moments where I faded out or just... People really underestimate how grueling tournament poker is if you're paying attention to every action and every hand to the point where if you needed to, you could make a note about every single hand. To pay that caliber of attention is very, very difficult uh, mm -hmm. mentally. And being able to have the strength to execute in that fashion, I was, I was able to memorize this young man's face, facial expressions when he had a big hand and he was hoping for action. And then we got to this river and I looked at his face and it was completely different than that hand, right? It was just, it was very, uh, just because I might play with him again here in Montreal, I'm not going to say, uh, what he did, but it was just a few things weren't adding up to me also based on some actions I'd seen, the way I'd seen him play hands, and I had my Evernote open mm -hmm. on my cell phone, and I was writing down, okay, he did this with this hand, and he did that with that hand, and I was able to, through my analysis, I was able to say, well, that hand doesn't make sense, that hand doesn't make sense, and that hand doesn't make sense, and then through the live I don't want to call it a tell, but maybe like just a feeling you get from live poker. Mm -hmm. I, I think finding a hard tell in live poker is very difficult, but you can get a feeling for, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you can get a feeling for someone's like baseline. Like, do they get nervous when they bluff? Do, get, do they get nervous with a big hand? Some people do get very nervous with a big hand. Uh, other people do get nervous with nothing it depends or you can be like me and just be nervous all the time i still get very nervous when i play live poker i'm not really used to people looking at me 
uh, when I play cards because 95% of my volume was online. Uh, but, <coughs> but uh, sorry about that, guys. It's Montreal winter here uh, do, doing its damage. And uh, I know Barry's got some problems, too, because of the Scottish fall. Uh, so <laughs> excuse us if uh, either of us kind of croak up. But uh, that was immensely gratifying to make that kind of read, to double up my chips by picking off one of the better professionals here. Uh, ju- just the level of focus I was able to maintain and the quality of edge I have on this competition is immeasurable. If you, if you can imagine, could you imagine, Barry, in, uh, right at the height of the moneymaker boom, could you imagine going to a poker table in 2005, so they're still playing at uh, Binion's, uh, could you imagine showing up at a table and seven of the nine guys were wearing hoodies, hadn't shaven, and they were reading books during every hand? <laughs> like, just every hand, they weren't paying attention. They were reading books, Right. Well, you would go like, these guys aren't here to win. I don't, I don't know what they're here to do. Well, that's effectively what everybody is doing my age. They're, just, they're not even reading a book. They're reading Facebook. They're reading Twitter. They're reading two. I saw a guy like reading two plus two forums. I, I said, you realize you can play poker right now. You don't have to discuss it. It's right here. Mm-hmm. You can look right here. There is a hand going on right now. You could learn about these guys. You might be in a hand with this guy in two hours or maybe even two months. Or I don't know. I was playing against a guy. Uh, I believe you pronounce his last name, uh, Samuel uh, Chartier. I was using a read I had from him on EPT San Remo, which was 2009. So I literally was using something from eight years ago because I was paying attention that particular day in Italy. Now we're in Montreal, Canada. And I'm using it again. The game is always going on. The game can always be applied. Your mastery can be attained at any one of these moments. But you want to sit around, like, uh, discussing Doug Pope's new video. Okay. Like, I I don't think you want it. I I don't think you want to be a poker player. I I think you want to be a fan. I think you want to participate. I think you'd like it if people saw you as a poker player. But you're no, you, sir, are no card player. And there's a lot of people who fancy themselves card players who are not card players at these events. And it is very satisfying to succeed versus them, to know you worked to not be in that category. And to to be fair, to know perhaps you were in that category before, or maybe you were in a pity party before that saw you not getting out of that, or perhaps just through your own... There were years I was not advancing as a professional poker player. There were just years I couldn't figure out the game. There was years I just looked for new edges and I couldn't find them. And I I have them now, Barry. And I'm very, like, I'm not going to call myself a professional poker player again because I think that belongs. If you're playing one, two, no limit, hold them here out in Montreal and you're living in a tiny Airbnb paying 30 bucks a night, you know, or you're living... Uh, you, you're renting out a little room or somewhere, and you, you are grinding out one, two. Uh, more power to you. I don't, I'm not going to take your title of professional poker player because that's a, very, uh, that's a very isolating profession, and I don't think it should be belittled because you really, if you want to be a gunslinger, you're going to have to go out and do that. And I did do that for a very long time, but I've, thankfully now I make my money from other avenues as well as playing cards, but uh, it, it was really nice to, even though I don't consider myself a professional poker player anymore, to, it was very nice to come up to Montreal and stomp some ass from some people who call themselves professional poker players who are not professional poker players, clearly. That was very gratifying. Yeah, I was yeah, just going to say something, though. Um, Alex, I can hear myself back quite loud. Here, let me mute my microphone. You go. Okay. Um, what I was thinking was the way you talk about you know your playbook and these situations that you've analysed and done all the, the work off the table on, how much of it then when you're playing live, if you do pick up a you know a little let's call it a feeling or because you know I've had that at live tables quite regularly and some of it comes from obviously just your brain looking for patterns that you've played against someone before it might even be that player but the way it's went bet check you know check bet or whatever or some 
goofy check raise on the river that just doesn't make sense when it, your brain sort of like instantly flags it up. How much of you then, or say like the tell that you, or the the situation that the guy was in or put himself in uh, from EPT San Remo so many years ago, how much of that will you, will it take to supersede your mathematical analytical approach in the moment, like on, on a hand? Well, uh, that's a really good question. What happened with uh, Sam, who I played with in San Ramo, I think was the last time uh, that I can remember playing with him, perhaps. I think maybe we might have played in Los Angeles, maybe a couple years after that, but it would have been very briefly. Uh, well, they kind of work hand in hand, which was the first time Sam opened from early position. Let's say it gets folded around to me there, and I have... Ace-Jack suited in the cutoff, uh, and he opened from early position, versus some of those, these guys who think they're God's gift to poker and think have never seen a Jack-7 suited they wanted to throw into the muck. I'm three-betting Ace-Jack suited, and I'm taking it for all it's worth. It's a value hand, right? Now, if it's just a random guy, uh, I can't estimate the opening frequency to be 25% or 20%. I have no idea what they're opening. I can make a guess, but a guess is just a guess, obviously. So what ends up happening is I end up having to hang back and just watch showdowns and see how, even if I don't get to see the hand, I have to like do estimates based on how many hands it seems like they don't connect with the flop to go, okay, what are you opening with here? Whereas if they play like they're always connecting with the flop, generally that means they have better hand selection than most people. And then, of course, you're profiling based on their age group and what have you. But they do kind of work hand in hand, which is uh, with Sam, I remembered him opening a specific hand from a specific position. Now, obviously, that was eight years ago, so I can't use that as a surefire read, but it does go into my rubric. It probably, if I have a hand that's right on the cusp, I'll three-bet it. But I, I would say more to your question, uh, to give your question the respect it deserves, because it's a really good question. I'd say most of my work is very analytics-based. Like, I would like to... I do have a lot of experience in the game, and I can change it. Uh, I, I can change the stats, like, on occasion, but it's not... A good example of this would be... I. This is going to be lost on, on a lot of your uh, a lot of our listeners, but in American football, you can call what's called an audible, right? Uh, an audible means the quarterback go, lines up and he sees the opposing defense and he goes, "Oh crap, our play is not going to work," and then he calls out something. The whole offense changes their play, right? That is extremely difficult to do because one, you need a really good quarterback. Two, you need to read the defense perfectly. Three, you're calling off all the work of your offensive coordinator, your head coach, all the game film they watch going up into that Sunday. You're calling it all off based on this very brief read of a defense. So generally, when they're teaching people how to play American football, when they're teaching kids how to be quarterback for American football, they say, do not call the audible unless you see something that is just glaringly obvious, right? And you, it's not going to work, right? So there's, uh, you won't see, in, this was, by the way, this is a really, uh, Carlos Welch, I think, came up with this analogy first. He, he, he's really big on in his lessons, don't call audibles. Go with your uh, game plan that you worked before that, because... You know, in his words, you're not Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl. You're not a college quarterback. You're not even starting for your local high school. Like, you're just starting out. So don't go calling audible. So, like, a really good example of that is uh, the river call I made versus that kid, I fold 90% of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, not be, it's not because it, it, I, I fold 90% of the time because 90% of guys do not have it in them to triple barrel bluff a guy all in in a 3,850 WPT. They just do not have that in them, right? And he was some guy who was a pot controller style player before that. So what you should do analytics-wise is go 
90% is still an A-. minus. Obviously, you're going for A game. But if you're right nine times out of ten, that's okay. And it, the one time out of ten the guy bluffed you, like, life will go on, right? But if you could get this one time out of ten, you'd be 100%, and then that's a home run. And that's really what you're looking for, because the difference between A- minus to A- plus in poker is all the money in the world. But generally, you can find that edge in live poker much more assuredly than you can in online, because in online, you're using a lot of, you're using uh, database analysis of the field, you're using a lot of, unless you're data mining, which is not allowed, you, you're using a limited set of hands, you're using timing tells, and a lot of that stuff doesn't add up to that much, whereas in live poker, live poker, there's a little of that, right? Although, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't find my ability to read facial language and to read like it, to to read situations non-verbally to be excellent, right? So unless it's glaring to me, I do not call an audible. It has to be something like when when that kid shoved all in on me my first like, well, I'll give you guys my real thoughts, which was like, call and bust this mother effort, right, was my first thought. I do not get that thought with second pair facing a triple barrel very often, right? So it was glaring, but I still sat there for a minute and a half before I did the call, whereas if I hadn't gotten that initial feeling, I wouldn't even entertain the notion, right? Mm-hmm. Because most, most guys just don't have it in them to triple barrel. Like, they just don't. I did not see one triple barrel bluff this entire WPT. I didn't see one. I could read every hand from start to finish, right? There was two, let let me take that back. There were two hands I couldn't read the river very well. There was one that was kind of confusing, but the pros do the same crap, and a lot of them just do not want to play a big pot, which there there is some logic to that in tournaments, which is, Again, going back to that ace-queen suited, like, ace-queen suited, like, if you flat, okay, it's good for 1.75 to 2.5 big blinds, depending on the caliber of the player you're playing against and your play, yada, yada. And if you three-bet, a lot of times you can get it up to, you know, you can get it up to, like, 2.5, three big blinds, right? And if you're really good, even more than that, right? But uh, all the, like, uh, but retaining your stack is very important when you have 40 big blinds and you're really near like a $5,000 real money bubble. That is, that is ICM wise that it's not going to be the one extra big blind you're making there on average is not going to make up. If you just bust $5,300 in real money of which on average you were going to be making 80% of the time, right? Mm-hmm. If you had just flatted there. So that is some, there is something to be said for playing smaller putts. But you have guys with, like, top two pair in these WPTs just checking that. Or guys with, like, top pair, top kicker checking that on the river. And you have guys who, like, have a beautiful triple barrel spot. Like, multiple overcards came on turn and river. Flushes came in. The guy capped his range at one pair on the flop. The guy is an online qualifier. The guy is terrified. He looks terrified. He's like a gazelle out there in the field, and he's just about to get picked off. And these guys just check. They just check. They're like, I don't want to win this tournament. Like, why would I want 22 big blinds in the middle? Do you know what 22 big blinds is in the context of tournament poker? And they're like, I don't want it. I, do, I just don't. They're just like, whatever. Right? So it, it's, it, it's amazing to me. We play this game. You almost like you get to the higher stakes tournaments and it becomes so much easier to read the play because everybody, like if you're playing in Planet Hollywood, you will have a guy who has some game there. You will have a guy who plays all the daily tournaments. He's making decent money from it. And if you give him the green light, he will go on the river, right? Whereas you have, when you get up to the higher stakes, you have a lot of these like pot controlling style guys who just won't go out there. And yeah, you can construct a playbook. I have constructed a playbook to undo these people. I have constructed a very good playbook, in my opinion. I think I improved upon it this week. So how often do I call an audible? Almost never. 
But there are times when they veer outside of their playbook and they're so uncomfortable with doing so, it's glaringly obvious. So I'd say maybe like one hand out of, let's say like 25, 30, I veer from what my playbook would say. And even then, I have to I have to have a damn good reason to do so because I really do believe in my strategy. I really do believe in my playbook, even more so after this deep run. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I I can hear myself. Well, good. I, he's muted the mic, so I can't now. Perfect. Um, <laughs> it was just the way I said I could hear myself back. Uh, yeah, you got me. Uh, Alex, I saw the name of the guy, and it stuck with me. Someone Rivers um, was his surname, Rivers. Uh, so that stuck in my mind. So <laughs> you, I'll leave all the jokes there. You can all do them yourself. But um, Alex went out 22nd, I think it was, in the tournament. So what was the X at hand, and what was take us from like just maybe 24 players left in the tournament, what your situation was, how you were feeling, and how you bust out, etc.? I, in general, I felt really good about this tournament from start to finish. When I busted the tournament, there was no. Uh, I'll take I'll take you guys from like the different phases here in just a second. Um, there was I when I busted this tournament, I really had no regrets. I had no worries. I wasn't mad at all. I hung out. I, w- I was really hoping to see Dennis uh, final table. Like he did final table his Potlam in Omaha tournament, but unfortunately, he only got to do ninth. But I, I hung out and waited for him. Like, I wasn't bugged by anything. Uh, the kid who busted me, like, good luck to him. Like, I don't... Even if he did something wrong, like, it's it's his tournament to do whatever the hell he wants with, right? So, he uh, in, he had eights, which was a really good and and probably, you know, it's ahead of my range. He won the flip, such is life. I, I shoved King-Queen for uh, 15.5x. That was the other thing I really worked on for this tournament. I really worked on my charts. I really have been working on my ICMizer stuff. Like, not ICMizer. I'm not, I don't use ICMizer. Uh, ICM. Uh, but uh, I was really working on my charts as far as jams because I had gotten a little nittier with that than I meant to recently. Uh, but it, as far as the tournament, uh, you know, it was funny because my, my girlfriend was just super. I told her I finished uh, 22nd or whatever it was, 23rd. And... She was just, oh, I'm so proud of you. Or And uh, I, I remember, you know, when that used to happen, I would go, I just lost a shot at winning a poker tournament, right? Like, why are we <laughs> celebrating, right? And uh, uh, this time I actually did celebrate. I was like, hey, my playbook works. I was really excited about that. And I think out of – I always score my play. Like, I take notes uh, during my play. I take notes on all the players. I take notes on my hands and whatever. An average score for me to give myself is like 8.5 to 9.25. And that that's like paying attention to 98% of the hands. Maybe like 2% of the hands got away from you somehow. Uh, that means like playing decently by the book, right? This one I gave myself 9.5, 9.75, something like that, right? I just, I was really on. I had no regrets as far as the bust out hand. I felt, I felt I played, I want to say there was like a grandiose statement, but really if you're working your ass off in this game and there, there's no, there's no physical depreciation in poker, right? As long as your mind is still getting stronger, your poker should be getting stronger if you're training hard enough. I felt like it was the best poker I played. It was the best I felt going into a live tournament ever in my life. And I really thank Frank, my trainer, for that. because uh, And he made routines for me to do while I was here in my little Airbnb. And uh, it, it was uh, it, it was it was just... It, it was a very rewarding experience. Uh, the, the stages of the tournament that were interesting, uh, day one, I had no... Ch- just to go through that for you guys, because I know you guys like that stuff. Uh, day one, I just didn't really have hands. I played pretty much nothing for six hours. Uh, I was just, you know, I was watching the players and doing a lot of reads, because I knew it was going to come up at some point. Unfortunately, my table never broke. Uh, so I, d- I did a lot of, uh, like, just writing... 
down notes, trying to watch the hands. I, I did, I was able to, uh, I had uh, Mr. Duhamel to my right, uh, Jonathan Duhamel, I think, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but uh, I just, the deck hit me over the head every time he opened, so it, it was like literally he opened seven times, I threw that seven times, and every single time I won, right? Other than that, uh, which looked really cool to do to a world champion, but you know, I, I secretly knew I had ace-king four of those times, right? But, uh, yeah, 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 you know, like, I stayed ahead in the chip count. I did okay. Like, I uh, I did have one really big fold I did. The, the river has really been my area of focus lately in my training. And there was, I folded top pair on a river I would have never folded before because I'm just convinced if you give the river away, you give the tournament away. And I really felt as if I was giving the river away. Like, I was going to be good a decent percentage of the time, but not enough to make up for my how bad it is if you call there and you're wrong like I think your margin of error has to be much you you must be very very careful about how many of those river bets you let go because if you let two of them go the tournament's over and if you let one of them go and you're just on the ropes for the rest of the tournament with a short stack like the the tournament is as, as good as done uh, in many cases, especially if you're surrounded by players who can take advantage of that, which unfortunately I was uh, at the beginning of this tournament. But uh, it, I had like a big river fold. And then, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I had that big river call. Started with like two X chips the second day. Uh, second day, I just went on fire. Uh, just won every race from short stacks in my table. I built up really fast, and then I got into the big race. Uh, you know, I... Uh, People on average had like 200, 300, 400,000 on day three when I busted. And there were some people who had like, no, on average they had like 500,000, right? But a lot of people did have 300, 400. And there were just a couple guys with like 2.5 million, 2.2 million, or whatever it was. To give you an idea of how big of this pot was, it was a, I would have had more than 500K like three hours in the day, too, if I had won this race, right? With like, I had taught Perry at an open-ended straight draw. He got there. Such is life. Uh, he didn't do anything wrong. He's allowed to play the tournament however he wants. It's, it, you know. And after that, I was a little... I wasn't crippled. I was just... Uh, I, I was doing well, but not, not so many chips that I could really go to war with a lot of the bigger stacks around me. Didn't really pick up many cards. So... I just kind of hung out there and wanted to play a hand, but I didn't really get one. Uh, since my stack wasn't super comfortable and there were so many people that could bust me at the table, and a min-cash... A min-cash is your first really big deal in the tournament. Like, if you min-cash consistently, you will be a pretty... Like, you will be a profitable uh, no-limit hold'em tournament player. But if you do, if you do nothing but min-cash, you're not going to be doing that well but if you if you get within 160 spots of the min cash and you always find a way to min cash while still keeping a very competitive stack like that is going to do a lot for your roi and many people underestimate that so what the way i secure that a lot of the time is i have my standard ranges and i downgraded it to my tag ranges which is you know it's just stuff like don't open six seven suited from the low jack and stuff like that like it's not it's not like huge uh, alterations, but it's it's really good when you have, you know, three murderers row tournament pros uh, to your left with big stacks who seem to want to get into a pissing for distance contest every hand, and what that does mean is, when I do eventually open my ace-10 offsuit, it's been so long since I open a hand, everybody just folds to me, mm-hmm. or when I do call from the big blind and I don't leave the flop, they're like, well, this guy hasn't played anything in a while, just fold, and it keeps you, like, chipping up uh, once we min cashed, no real. I didn't. I didn't really alter my ranges from my tag ranges because uh, everybody really seemed to want to show they were. They really wanted to get on TV. It felt like there was just a lot of grandstanding. I felt, and while that that's not a problem, it, it just means you can't open. You can't steal with a suited connector from early position. You can't open twos through sixes because chances are you're getting three bets. So there was a lot of times I have 40 big blinds and I'm in the hijack and 
there's a kid on the button who's just three betting every single time I open. So I can open King Jack offsuit there as long as I'm willing to four bet all in. And I was prepared to do that. I just didn't get the cards to do so. So I kind of limped around, limped around, limped around. Every time I played a flip, I lost. And then, then I would get really short and I'd win a flip to not go out. And then eventually one of those flips got me. And that was it. Uh, my steal attempts worked almost always. Uh, uh, felt, Felt very good about the play. Felt very good about my performance overall. Do you not think it's funny how, no matter how well you played, and you, it sounds like you were really happy with your game and stuff, um, nobody's immune from it coming down to a coin toss. <laughs> <laughs> nobody is. Nobody. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of the fun thing about tournament poker. That was, well, the other thing I told myself. We were just tennis. Dennis and I were talking about this. Uh, over, uh, we were at the we were at the diner this morning. We're just, we were just talking about uh, you know, if you win this tournament, it's three hundred and eighty thousand Canadian. You you think about it. If you win two of these, can you really retire? I mean, like two of them back to back. Like eight hundred thousand dollars is not going to help you retire. Like it it will last you a very long time, but. You, you will have to go back to work. And, like, that that was a thought, you know, he he was pointing out, like, you know, it's not a ton of money. And he we were talking about why is it, it – a lot of guys look so devastated when they bust the WCP main event. It's, it's really because I think those guys are trying to escape working. And if you win $7 million, yeah, okay, it's over. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you're done. No need to work anymore, right? Yeah. But the way you win at this is – Apparently, I, I was being told that uh, on a tournament poker edge podcast, they were talking about you can't enter a poker tournament after you lose a big one. And somebody said, "Oh, that's not true." And the guy said, "Well, we're not all assassinato who can bust the main event and then, you know, win a two hundred and fifteen for twenty five k or whatever it was, right?" That year, I think we were doing Ask Alex then, which was I busted the main event. And I won like a daily at the Rio, right? Yeah. Which I, I think you won one too, which was bizarre. No, no I went uh, fifth. I got oh uh, fifth. Okay, yeah. yeah, but we both had some serious finishes. But yeah, and I remember like when I heard about that, I was thinking, why wouldn't you play a two fifteen? Like I like playing video games at an arcade. Like poker is fun. Poker is very fun, and it, you gotta love. If you don't love the flip. And the fact that some old-timer can come out here and not know damn near anything and can get to a final table, like, you shouldn't be playing. It, quite frankly, you don't belong. Yeah. It, to me, well, it, you, you can play, but I, I just I don't think this is the profession for you. You do this for the struggle. You do it for the right to struggle. You do it for the train ride from New York to Montreal to look at the fall colors in upstate New York and to think, this one could be mine. That is your reward right there. That is your reward right there because there's a lot of people going to work today who do not have that feeling, who do not have that hope, who do not know that today could be their day. That is most of the people on earth. That is your salary. It, it is absent of the money. The flip, the fact you even get a flip means you are the luckiest person on earth because most people don't get a flip. Most people get nothing. So if you're, if you're not, and I really told me, you can, I, I think it's a, this anti-intellectual thing, like, how do you make yourself feel better? You tell yourself you feel better. Oh, that sounds so stupid, right? No, come on, we've got to get a team of doctors together. This is something Adam Carolla was saying, I thought was really intelligent, which was, no, 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 if you want to feel happier, we've got to get a team of doctors together. Uh, we have to... We have to really analyze that. And it's like, no, I just, I remind myself all the time, your real salary is the fact you get to be here with a bunch of these, with the, with a bunch of these people who could be doing anything else. And you do get to play cards. You do get to play cards. And when you're done playing cards, you get to go watch CFL football games and you get to go watch a perfect circle live. You get to go and you do it for the mornings when you're at the diner, like going over your table, draw deep thinking this could be the time. That is your real salary, sitting there like the old school gamblers scouting your competition because most of us are not going to be offensive coordinators for football teams. Most of us 
are not going to be playing on soccer teams in Europe. Most of us are not going to be playing in Premier League. But in poker, you do get that opportunity, and that is your real salary. And if you do not realize that, you should not be doing this for a living. The, the funny thing is, I get that now that I don't do it for my main income. Right, right. Once you're, once it's not your main, and for me too. Like once I started teaching poker, I started realizing what a special game this was because you see all the people whose lives are touched when you get to. When it, if I just went to the card room, at the playground, and I just saw the unwashed masses that I call my colleagues, uh, I would not think this is so great a game. But then when you get to meet the anesthesiologist and the uh, the lawyers and the brokers who, you know, are good people, family people, and they want, you know, they want to do something other than play Counter-Strike on PC. They want to play an adult game, and they don't, and they want a little something more than chess. They want to play something for money where, there, you know, there's a little bit of gamble in it, right? Like, it's a little mm-hmm. fun that there's a gamble in it. And if you don't enjoy the gamble in it, like, why are you gambling? I don't get that. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. It's like any tournament I play, and I'm actually going to play tomorrow. The uh, there's a three hundred and thirty pound buy in in Edinburgh, the Scottish Cup game. Yeah, um, baby. I think it's uh, I think seventy five k guaranteed. If anybody in Scotland listening that's not aware of it, but they will be. Um, that is uh, there's a day one A today, day one B tomorrow, day one C Friday, and then day two Saturday, and then final Sunday. So I'm going to go and play that tomorrow and. The last time I played, you know, I made the day two of their main event one, 440 buy-in, and it was just, like you say, just, I went through on the train, got a hotel, so it was all that that you sort of enjoy, and just, it's true, it's like, I don't care when I bust now, and it's probably because I'm not playing with money as well, that you're like, oh, you know, you're so invested, and you, right, you're going to right. feel, you're, you're just playing, and making the right decisions, and as long as you're happy with how you played, etc., I mean, Surely everyone that listens to this show is given up trying to think they can control the the cards that come out when they when there's a flip. Like, that cannot be taught. There's nothing we can, you know. There's no, there, we can't find telekinesis yet, evidence of it in science. So um, that that's impossible. But now you, that was a good uh, phrasing you chose there, like the train from New York to Montreal, and just like. That's it. It's hope. You've you've got a chance. You know you're in it. You've got a ticket, and without simplifying it too much, but you've got to be in it to win it, sort of thing. And even in it just to compete, and the feeling that that gives. And then you know if you get a min cash, and then you go, and then who knows? It's up to how how good you're running that day. But um, no, I agree with you. I think um, especially tournament poker, it should be fun, and it should be taken as that, and especially live tournament poker. I mean, when you're really in the mood for it, it is great fun, uh, win or lose. Right. I, I, in, I, I think you hit on something really important there that I just want to get to just in case we do any questions before we're done with this first episode. But uh, it's got to be money you don't care about. That's the big thing. I, se- I sell a lot of myself in these events, and it's because... Well, one, if I don't have to pay that much money and keep a significant percentage of myself, why wouldn't I? I think that was my dream when I was a teenager, right? Which was, wouldn't it be great to play poker for free and, like, not risk anything and then, like, get money if you win? Or to play for the the amounts you're willing to risk, right? Like, oh, yeah, I've got this money. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, let's, let's do that, right? And uh, if you can do that, like, it's much more enjoyable. And I do... I do get that some people say, like, oh, you know, you put big money up, it's, like, big excitement. But, like, I've never really felt like that. I've never – or they feel like you're more invested in it if you put bigger money up. And I see that argument, but, yeah, I just play for the hell of playing it. I just love to play cards. I I really – we I just did this thing where I said I'm about to play online again. And if you want to invest in it, these are the amounts you can do. And I actually put a cap on it because what ends up happening is somebody always wants to, like, buy it out, the entire thing, which I don't think is really fair to the guy who wants to invest 50 bucks uh, to just have somebody, like, go, no, all me, right? But uh, I really want to play online poker today, but I know I have to rest myself because I just spent three days of 10 hour days focusing the entire time. And like one poker hour for me is like 
four hours of normal work. It's so intense following everything, watching everything, thinking of everything, anticipating the game. So I know I'm supposed to rest myself today, but it, to this day, I still, like, Dennis was even making fun of me today. He was like, oh, yeah, today, yesterday he was saying, like, oh, yeah, today you're saying, oh, I can't play tomorrow, and then tomorrow it's going to be, what's the guarantee? What time does it start? And then there you're going to be going, right? And it's like, the fact I still have to fight from playing poker I enjoy it so much means it's the greatest job in the world right there. It is the greatest job in the world. And my day job is teaching people how to play poker. And, yeah, that's not as exciting as going deep in a WPT, sure. But it's still working in poker. You still – and it's not working in poker just mindlessly, like, say, you know, say, like, filling out surveys or something for a poker site. I mean, or just tallying surveys for a poker site. It is working with poker strategy. It is – understanding the concepts and that that's such an incredible opportunity and yeah you got to be in it to win it and we're in it barry our attitude has changed quite a bit since the beginning of the show <laughs> have you yeah, noticed yeah. that yeah we don't hate poker <laughs> <laughs> yeah we really hated it when we started i was damn that was i was too young and angry i don't know what your excuse was oh yeah the the pro poker experiment wasn't going that good right yeah, I just, uh, it was too much like a real job for me. <laughs> it is a real job. It's hard. Uh, I, I just hard. mean hours, you can't earn money while you're sleeping. I prefer stuff like that. Yeah, um, that's always pretty nice. <laughs> um, all right, let's try and fit in one question on this episode. Let me just have a look and see one that's maybe not going to be really, really super in-depth. Those two are emails. Let's go for this one. This one sounds, and it's about a tournament as well, a live tournament, and you can maybe relate your own experience, etc. to it. Uh, this one is from Tom. Hey, I was watching an interview recently, and the player was talking about Phil Helmuth and that he famously turns up later for tournaments. The guy was putting down Phil Helmuth quite a bit, and he said that the only thing he does right with his game, or one of the things he only does right with his game, is to turn up for the later stages because it reduces his negative edge in these high-stakes tournaments. He has when the stacks are bigger and less variance. Huge needle, but it did get me wondering, what's your thoughts on missing the first few levels of tournaments? It's really weird. I watched maybe one poker video a month. Like, I don't watch Doug Poke. I don't watch other training videos. I do a lot of reading. But uh, I, wa I saw this video. I think the guy, now, what was the guy's name? It's a German pro, right? The one who, the one who won the Poker Masters. What was his name, Dennis? Stefan Stoudenheimer, yeah. yeah Thank yeah, you. Goose or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, he won the Poker Masters or whatever. And, yeah, I saw that video. It was pretty funny. But um, it, I hate showing up late for tournaments. I look back at when I had more money than brain cells, and there was, if you want to know one of the big reasons I don't think I did that well, is I always showed up late to poker tournaments, and that's because there's information out there for cheap. You don't have to pay much to be there from the beginning. Sometimes you sh show up and you start shorthanded, and you're playing against, think of who knows how to play shorthanded. It's people who are good players, right? Where do they usually learn to play shorthanded at the end of a tournament? And if you're going to elect to play shorthanded poker, like if you're going to walk into a casino and or not walk into a casino, log on to Poker Stars and play six max poker, you're going to be playing with people who elect to play short shorthanded poker. Many of these people have never played shorthanded poker before in their life. And you're playing. You have a chance to play four-handed with them, but you're, you know, you're back in your uh, hotel watching Seinfeld. Like that. That's a that's a really bad decision to make. Uh, second of all, the bad players are going to bust pretty quickly and no limit hold them. You want to get as much time as possible as you can get with them. If they're on average going to bust by level seven, and you skip the first three levels, that means I'm getting seven levels out of seven with them, and you're getting four levels out of seven. And furthermore, you're not going to know how to bust them because you don't know their frequencies, you don't know 
are they stationary? You don't know if they pot control. You don't you don't know any of these things because you haven't been paying attention to hands. Are you you know you're off reading a book while you're supposed to be playing poker? You're off you know on Facebook grinding right At, on your cell phone. So yeah, not showing up to tournaments literally or figuratively, being on your cell phone all the time, selling your market for one point four and not offering stake back because you like robbing your friends. Like no, that's not a good idea. Uh, secondly. Uh, and just showing up late in tournaments. I don't like the way I look at it. Tournaments is the first like four or five hours, especially in these big tournaments. Uh, it's a smaller time frame uh, for smaller stakes tournaments. That's your time to observe the table. That's your time to maybe like with a big hand extract some serious value because a lot of people with like two hundred big blinds it just treat it like monopoly money, right? So if you can get like forty, fifty big blinds off of them, maybe forty, fifty big blinds isn't a ton at that time, but starting with, like, imagine, imagine if, uh, tomorrow they said, you know, Alex is such a good guy that, uh, on American's card room, he gets to start with a 1.25x stack, uh, compared to everybody else at the table. What kind of edge would that be for me, Barry? Do you think there would be an uproar? Yeah. Yeah, there would be a huge uproar that would be such BS, and there would probably be a lot of people on 2 Plus 2 estimating what an insane edge that is, right? You can get that edge a lot of the time all by your damn self. If you show up early and you watch these guys and you 3-bet, that's the other thing. You have to 3-bet, get the bad player heads up, and take his lunch money. Beat the snot out of him. Don't be afraid. Don't be one of these... A lot of guys, like, show up in a... You know, like, they get ace-king, and the guy opens, and they're like, okay, I'm going to flat because early, and, you know, I don't want to bust. Or, like, I saw, I saw a guy, he was probably one of the best players I saw in Montreal this week, but, like, a guy opened under the gun, and they were, like, 60 big blinds deep, and the guy just flatted kings. Because even though the guy under the gun was, like, totally willing to, like, go off the handle with, like, tens, jacks, queens, or ace-queen, or ace-jack if he hit his hand. Nobody's folding the three bets anymore, so I don't know why you wouldn't three-bet your premiums for value. And it's like, yeah, I, I know sometimes the board comes ace-high and you have to check, call, check, fold, turn, and I'm sorry that you don't always get to win it, hold them, but I, the, the vast majority of the times, you are going to make more money if you three-bet. And a lot of that... One of the best times to do that is at the beginning of the tournament. Is at the beginning of the tournament, if somebody opens you three bet and they four bet, they have uh, they have aces, they have kings, right? Like you don't see people like just four bet wide anymore. Like you just don't see it. I'm like really proud of someone when they do it. And what they do is what they do is they go, well, I have infinite big blinds, so I'm going to call this three bet with four seven suited, and okay, I hit a seven. So, or, or no, I have a backdoor flush draw and a gut shot. So, okay, I'm going to check call this flush. Okay, I, hurt, I hit the seven, and he could be double-barreling me. So, okay, I'm going to check call here. And, uh, this river is a bit of a scare card. Now, nah, whatever. I got two, 200 big lines going down to 170, 165. That's not a big issue. I call, okay, he's got, uh, he's got ace king. He turned his king. Like, or, uh, I mean, he, uh, he flopped his king. Uh, okay, whatever. There, I just got my edge. I have 1.25x on everybody else. Even even better, this guy's in the hole. Even better, I have a bit of a psychological edge on this guy. Why would you want to give this up? And all the, all the bad players are going to go bust. Furthermore, if you show up there early, you can see people's passports when they hand them in. Uh, that this is much more for international competition or like, like Europe. Everybody has their passport in the States. You can get a little off of, you know, when they turn in their ID. Like, But... Not not a ton, right? Well, if they're closer to Vegas or Los Angeles, I just I assume they're going to be slow as hell, but probably decent players. Whereas if they're from bum f nowhere, they're probably not going to be as good. But it, you want to see where they're from. You got to see if they if they're talking. You want to listen, right? And if they're talking about they qualified online, they want a satellite. This is somebody who's going to buckle under pressure. Now you got to figure out how they're going to buckle. A lot of people, when they have a ton of big blinds, the way they're going to buckle is they're going to sling the call in because, they, God forbid, they go to bed not knowing what you had on that hand. <laughs> and if it's an all-in bet, the way they're going to buckle is they're going to fold. But you're not going to know that if you show up three levels in and 
I was going to make a very crude joke, but I'm not going to do it. But you're not going to know that if you show up late. Good luck to you. Great question. Okay, and just one thing before we wrap this first episode up. Me and Alex are recording two episodes today. Is Dennis still there in the background? Uh, Dennis is in... Yeah, he's in his bedroom. Oh, I was going to get him on for a laugh for like literally 10 seconds to say we had him on the podcast. And... Hey, Dennis! You want to be on the podcast? All right. You got 10 seconds starting now. <laughs> I'd say you should hustle. All right. Hold on. Hey, it's our first guest ever on the podcast, a brisk 162 episodes in. What did you want to ask him? He's here. Al, uh, Dennis, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Welcome to the OneOuter.com podcast. You're the first guest on the Ask Alex uh, episode of it. Um, how, how's Alex behaving? How is he as a partner in crime when he comes up to see you and goes around these tournaments and stuff with you? He, he's pretty good. Uh, first, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be the first guest on the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, he behaves pretty good. Um, I kind of act like an older brother or maybe like a stepfather, I think, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's pretty good. He, he, um, anybody that's backing him feel feel good about it. He does behave, and he's he's very professional about the poker. And I believe that you were close to some money in the PLO game. I, it came up, and actually, I didn't see the head, and I just saw the uh, Dennis, like your name, and it had breathes his last breath. And I thought that you'd like bubble final table. I thought you were playing the main with Alex, so you know, like that. And then I saw it was the PLO game. But how did you get on in that? Did you cash for any money? And um, how how did that go? It went. Uh, it was a two-day event, and uh, the first day went really slow, and I, I, I ended up catching a couple of big hands at the end of the day to get a, an average stack for the uh, final 14. And unfortunately, with about 12 people left, I uh, flopped a full house, and uh, I, I tried to trap the guy, and, and on the turn, when he potted and I repotted, he had caught a, a better underfold than me, so it, it crippled me. And then uh, I got to the final table of nine, and the bubble was eight for cash. And I offered the table a deal, but they wouldn't take it with my three big blinds. So <laughs> uh, I ended up, I, I, I tried because of ICM. I just folded, hoping somebody else would bust until I was kind of uh, one big blind, and I tripled up in my big blind. And then the next time around, it didn't work out again. So I, I, I made the final table, but stone bubbled the money. Yeah, you reminded me that I think I've talked about it on the show before when I was part of a famous 17-way chop in a tournament in Edinburgh, um, one of the Scottish <laughs> Masters events or something there. It was surreal, but the the cliffs where it got to like 17 players left, there was one chip leader. I think the chip leader had something like 19 big blinds. It became that <laughs> much of a, a crash. It was unreal. And the average stack was like, I, I don't know, I'm plucking numbers from the air, but it was real bad. It was like five big blinds, six blinds, whatever. And lots of people on my table were talking about, you know, this is ridiculous. What's happening on this and that? I said, I looked at the money and I worked out and I was like, that's like 1,200 each. It was like 100 pounds buy-in. And I was, you know, it's two in the morning at this time or something or half one in the morning. And I, I just sort of like for a laugh said, you know, we could just chop it like one thousand two hundred each and get up the road. And you know, I'm sitting there like six <laughs> big blinds or something. You know, and this foreign guy was the chip leader. He was like, no, 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 no way, no way, this and that. And I says, look, well, you'll get the trophy and you'll get, you know, we'll, we'll work something. And I worked it out and I was like, you get an extra something like an extra three hundred pounds or something. So you got fifteen hundred. You went, no, I want an extra four hundred pounds, whatever. I was like, well. And then nobody on my table re refused it. Everyone else on his was up for it. Eventually, we got this deal, like, basically loosely agreed. And as soon as he agreed, he stood up and I shook his hand and I just spread his chips out over the table. So, like, <laughs> and, and the other players went, yeah, good game, good game, everyone. You know, so, like, that point, it was done. And uh, <laughs> me and a few guys from Dundee were uh, part of that. And it was... Uh, it was funny because I didn't have like a Hendon mob entry at the time and they took the only the 10 people that went up for their tickets. They all cashed for 1200 And I was like, oh, it's only showed the 10. So I still didn't get like a Hendon mob entry for it. But, <laughs> but we did get 1200 each. Uh, and it was it's what's become known as like the Dundee chop in Scotland. 
any deal that's made with <laughs> more than a f- <laughs> any deal that's made with a few more than a few players gets called a Dundee chop now uh, in Scotland, and it does happen <laughs> sometimes. There's like seven at a final table, and they'll chop it up, etc. Um, it was quite common occurrence in the old card room I used to play with, where it was all the regulars getting to the final usually, and unless there was one player that you maybe didn't or you had history with and you didn't do deals with, etc. But quite regularly, there would be four five way chops every night, you know. But mm. um, oh well, Dennis, thanks for coming on. That was a great. You got more than the ten seconds. Um, I hope Alex uh, continues to entertain you while he's uh, staying up near you. And Alex, you don't really play much PLO or that, do you? You should play some with uh, Dennis, even for you know recreationally for a laugh. Put some money in, and um, I think it's much better game for a home game PLO. Oh God, it's really fun. Well, he got me to play the five card PLO the last time I was out here, and it was probably the most fun I had on the entire trip. It was really weird, rivering top set. And going, yeah. well, the only straight here is a 2-6 or whatever it was, right? And then, oh, he's got it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Value bet, top set, repot, like, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, there you go. But, yeah, I love I love PLO. I'm not any good at it, but it's well, definitely, it's a great game. It's a, it's good good that Dennis is looking into it, too, because I think some of the hand histories he tells me, I'm going... Like, what the hell? Like, nobody, nobody must know anything about yeah. this game. Whereas everybody kind of knows stuff and hold it. That was your first PLO tournament, right? First live one. His first live tournament, he final tables. Nice. But, yeah. You know, it comes away with zero dollars like a champ. But uh, yeah. Yeah. other than that, that ah, this Here, a, he got something money can't buy, and that's a guest appearance on the com podcast. Actually, money... <laughs> actually, actually... <laughs> Actually, money can buy that. If you want to appear on the com podcast, <laughs> PayPal me $20 and you can come on, you know. <laughs> 20 bucks, Barry. All yeah. Right. Uh, no, it's funny. You reminded me as well of the old days in the Dundee card room. We used to play Dealer's Choice and it was six-card Omaha we used to play. What? Yeah, six-card Omaha and some of the pots would be frightening. It would be brilliant. <laughs> when the festival was on, these guys would come out... Uh, you know, from out of town playing, it would be six card. Sometimes it would be six card Omaha double flop as well, and what? double board. So you would double flop to, and if it was ran, it would be double flop turn river. Yeah, all that. Um, yeah, that we used to play uh, four card Irish and three card Irish, which I think is, I think you guys call it pineapple, where you where it's basically yeah, we call it pineapple and Tahoe. Yeah, I think you get like three cards and then the flop's dealt and you have to get rid of one if it's three yeah, cards. Or yeah, if... that's pineapple. Yeah, well, it's that, Irish. You call that Irish? Called. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Scotland, we, we, we were calling that, yeah, like three card Irish, four card Irish. And now we would play like studs. I'm trying to think of the other games for the. But six card Omaha was, was great fun. I mean, it really was. Um, uh, that's a good time. That's a yeah. good time. Okay, right. We're going to wrap up for this episode. And uh, Alex, how can people get in touch with you for your webinars, packages, etc.? And I, I did see some guys asking you if you're going to release sort of Life Poker 2.0 type thing and Life Poker 101 2.0. And obviously, with your uh, recent work you've been doing and stuff, you said stuff was maybe in the pipeline coming soon. So, how can people get into your newsletter etc and be kept up to date of everything you got coming out if uh if you guys want to get a hold of me my email address is alex at pokerheadrush.com i do respond to the emails personally myself uh just give me a few days uh to sign up for my newsletter go to pokerheadrush.com that's my blog if you for some reason want to read about the books i'm reading and stuff like that but uh to the right of uh pokerheadrush.com there's a newsletter sign up go ahead and sign up for that and you'll you'll get all the podcasts for free all the videos for free or the all the articles for free we usually send out multiple ones per week and uh, if you ever want to invest in me that's the only place i sell action on is that email list so uh, be sure to sign up for that and check out my newest videos on tournament poker edge okay and uh, keep your questions coming in for alex uh, questions at com. And if you've got any questions for Dennis, keep them coming in as well. Questions at oneouter.com. Uh, joking aside, Dennis, it was the first time I spoke to you, actually, uh, voice. Voice on voice. So uh, that was cool. And uh, thanks for coming on the show and playing along. That, that, was, that was good fun. And people, 
long-time listeners will know. We've all. How do you say his surname again? It's Peterson, wasn't it? Or yeah, Peterson. I, yeah, it's Peterson. Peterson. It's Peterson. Yeah. Always spelt wrong and said wrong. So yeah. <laughs> but I, I'll give yeah. you the European, like you saying Peterson. It's it's acceptable because they all said that way there. <laughs> yeah, I used to say Peterson. There was like I think he was an Icelandic guy used to play football for one of the local teams. Um, Henrik Pedersen, I think it was, and uh, Henrik or Eric Pedersen, and uh, I always remember that. So when I first saw it, it was that. But yeah, I think it's just like Peterson, so with a T, um, even though it's spelt with a D. Okay, well, Dennis Peterson, thanks for appearing, and Alex Fitzgerald. Uh, suppose it's good to have you on again as well. <laughs> um, right, we're going to take a break. This one's ending, and this one is out on Wednesday night. You will be listening to this, and there's another episode coming tomorrow, Thursday the 16th of November, which myself and Alex will record in about five minutes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. Every day at America's Card Room, players just like you are scoring big in record time with Jackpot Poker. Jackpot Poker is a super-fast three-player online poker set-and-go. You pick the buy-in, and after all three players are seated, we randomly pick the jackpot. Yep, just three players. No more, no less. And for most jackpot poker tournaments, it's winner take all. Imagine turning a $40 buy-in into the ultimate $100,000 game of poker. Anything could happen with jackpot poker. Play it now at America's Card Room.